even the fact that you think that you are watching on the journey with Matt and Ken, and we think that we are on here recording something for you. <laughs> that's just an illusion. Like you're not there. We're not there. There's just something that is causing some clump of cells on your end of this thing and some clump of our cells over here to think that we are distinct groups of conscious beings when in fact it's just another process. To imagine, to imagine, yeah. It's another illusion. Well, hello and welcome to another Bronco Bustin' episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. He was a Baptist pastor. I worked at Family Christian Store. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but either way, we both ended up in the Catholic Church, and we have taken several episodes to explain various aspects of that. Uh, if that's you, and you're in that questioning phase and are looking for somebody to talk to, and especially if you're a Baptist pastor like Ken, or any other kind of pastor, then please let us know um, how we can help you. And uh, just go over to chnetwork.org for that. And if you really want to get into the conversations after the show about the topics we discuss on the show, or really about any topic whatsoever, head over to our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you, Matt. Good to see you, too, and good to put a bow on this series we've been doing on atheism. Again, this yeah. is a, a little yeah. a mix of our own experiences, a mix of the experiences we've had talking to some of our friends who come from backgrounds much like ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, but have gone in different directions than we did. Uh, so uh, how do we uh, how do we wrap it all well, up today? Yeah, you know, this show that you and I have been doing, it, it, it hasn't been a few episodes. We've done about 75 episodes called On the Journey with Matt and Ken, where what we're mainly doing is we're trying to des describe our journey um, into the Catholic faith. You know, we're trying to explain the process of reasoning that led us from where we were to where we are. But in this particular series, we've kind of stepped away from that for a, about 10, 11, 12, I don't know how many episodes, 14 episodes, to, to discuss um, how we might want to carry on the conversation with those who either doubt or deny the existence of God. That's what we've been talking about. Okay, I want to begin by mentioning again our good friend from Greek mythology, Procrustes, one of the more curious uh, and enigmatic fellows from, from that whole realm. As you may remember, Matt, Procrustes ran a little inn on the road somewhere near Athens. And when people would stop by on the road, he would invite them into his inn, give them a nice dinner, invite them to stay over. And in fact, he would say to them, you know, he would kind of entice them by saying, I have this really incredible bed that magically fits every person that lays on it. Okay. Of course, he doesn't tell them how he, how he makes that happen. But once he gets them in the room, once they lay down on the Procrustean bed, Procrustes bed, um, he straps them down and he makes sure that they fit the bed exactly. If they're too long, he uh, pulls out his um, tweezers, <laughs> whatever he uses, I don't know what, you know, his uh, hacksaw, and he begins to cut off as much of their feet and legs as he needs to to make them fit the bed. Man, that would be short, painful if you pulled off your foot one tweezer full at a time. That'd <laughs> yeah, be I awful. Know. That's why I laughed when I said tweezer. Should have been like a hacksaw, something better. Okay, and if they're too short, the bed seconds as a rack, and he stretches them out to make them fit the bed. 
the bottom line is everyone winds up fitting the bed of Procrustes. And I think uh, that Procrustes, what Procrustes did to his bed, I mean, did to his guests on his bed, is what all reductionist worldviews do to human experience. In other words, I, I think that I think of Procrustes, Matt, as the ultimate reductionist. And this is inevitable, because when you think about it, any reductionist worldview, if all of reality is viewed as reducible to one essential thing, whatever it is, and when someone is committed to making sure that everything is made to fit that one essential thing, well, some serious torturing of human experience is probably going to have to take place. Some stretching here, some whittling, maybe some lopping off, maybe some amputation. Yeah, and, and this uh, comes gonna... from when you start with the conclusion and then you start to, if you have the conclusion in mind yeah. first, and then your worldview is, how do I then prove, how do I then find everything I can to prove the thing that I've already decided about reality? Yeah, yeah, and the thing you've decided is that everything is reducible to one thing. Let me give you an illustration from Eastern pantheism, some, something we haven't talked about, but the Eastern philosopher insists that everything is God, small g, that everything is spirit, Reality is reducible to spirit. And therefore, when some unenlightened Westerner like you or me comes along and says, well, you know, um, dang, it just doesn't seem like everything is spirit, you know? Like, uh, how about this laptop that I'm rattling right here? Uh, how about, um, you know, how about this body that, I'm, that I indwell? You know, what about this chair? What about the house I live in? I swear, every, it just doesn't seem like everything is spirit. Um, what the subtle Eastern mystic is going to say in response is, ah, but this is Maya. This is all illusion, right? Material reality may seem to exist, but it really doesn't. Beneath what appears to be, that is beneath the illusion of Maya, everything is spirit. Okay, now when I think of it, Matt, modern scientific materialism does exactly the same thing but from the reverse side, and in fact, I would say materialism is the exact inverse of Eastern pantheism. And so the scientific materialist tells us everything is matter. Nothing exists but particles. And everything can be explained in terms of particles and their relations with one another, to quote atheist philosopher John Searle. This is materialism. And when the unenlightened once again, you know, furrows his you know, fool brow and says, well, it just doesn't seem like everything's material, though. I mean, what about these thoughts that I have in my mind right now? Are they material entities? What about morality? Are right and wrong material things? I mean, you know, how much does right weigh? You know, how long is wrong? I mean, are these material realities? What about human consciousness? These things don't seem to be made of matter. To this, the, um, the subtle Western philosopher will respond by saying, well, everything is matter. That's an illusion. For instance, atheist Paul Churchland, in his book, um, Matter and Consciousness, says this, the important point about the standard evolutionary story is that the human species and all of its features are the wholly physical outcome of a purely physical process. You got that? The wholly physical outcome of a purely physical process and then he says, if this is the correct account of our origin, then there seems neither need nor room to fit any non-physical substances or properties into our theoretical accounts of ourselves. 
we are creatures of matter. So you see the exact, the precise inverse of pantheistic reductionism is materialist reductionism. Yeah, and if you press somebody on that and say, well, we don't have any proof that uh, thought and consciousness and free will are the results of purely physical processes, we Mm -hmm. know that they have a physical component to them, but we can't, there's things that we simply cannot demonstrate. Uh, then very often the answer you'll get is that, well, I am confident that one day we will be able to demonstrate, which is, again, the same as, yeah, it's yeah, faith. yeah, it's faith. Well, well uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and you use the word assumption, so you know, yeah, okay, but here's the thing, okay, we got Procrustes, the ultimate reductionist, who reduces everyone to his bed and everyone fits. Then, on the one hand, you got the Eastern uh, pantheist philosopher that is confident like you said, faith, assumption, that, that reality actually is spirit, and everything reduces to spirit, and anything that doesn't seem to be spirit is, is illusion. And then you have the materialist on the other side. Everything is matter, particles and their relations with one another, and whatever doesn't seem like matter, sorry, that's an illusion. That, that is really, in a nutshell, uh, much of the content of the series as we've walked through a number of ideas week by week. And we're just going to quickly hit on them today just to summarize. Um, But here are some examples. For instance, the idea that human beings possess inherent worth and dignity, that human beings possess high worth and value, equal worth, that human beings are all equal in their value, their worth, their dignity. Sorry. I mean, sorry, Matt. This is an illusion from a materialist perspective. In a universe in which nothing exists but matter, and in which human beings are nothing more than accidental products of material processes from beginning to end, as um, Paul Churchland just said, I mean, there's no basis for believing any of this in an atheist worldview, okay? And atheists will admit this. Atheists will even insist upon it. You remember our good friend Ingrid Newkirk, president of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, when she said, and I quote her, animal liberationists, do not separate out the human animal. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They are all mammals. In fact, it's, you're downright committing the sin, the evil sin of speciesism, when you stand up and you try to insist that the human beings possess um, greater inherent intrinsic value than other animals. Never mind the fact that uh, Ingrid breaks this up into rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, is mammals. So, I mean, in terms of classification, would that be classism? I mean, how do we treat vertebrates? Do we treat vertebrates and invertebrates differently? Where does that break down? Mollusks, mollusks, fungi, you know, sure. single-celled organisms. I mean, it's... But at any rate, you can't break yeah. out... You can't really do any of that, right? If it is no. a purely material, you can't distinguish between... Not only can you distinguish... Can you not distinguish between a rat, a pig, a dog, and a boy? You can't distinguish between a man and a mushroom. Yeah, I mean, in terms of value, yeah, in terms of ultimate objective worth, value, etc. No, and we dig into this a lot more. Yeah, in episode sixty-seven. That's why atheist, yeah, yeah, atheist James Rachel said that we have no right to speak of ourselves as being any better than cockroaches. Okay, that was episode episode sixty-seven for people. Sixty-seven, which if you want to look for it, it's the one that has the poster that says a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy on it. So we get we we address that at length in that episode. So okay, so. Human worth, equal worth, value, that's one. But what about morality? That's the second one. What about the universal intuition that we have, whether we're atheist or or we believe in God, that right and wrong 
are more than merely words we use to express uh, what we prefer and what we don't prefer, what we like, what we don't like. You know, the, the universal intuition that we have that morality is something real, that right and wrong are something real. From an atheist perspective, from a materialist perspective, sorry, that's another illusion. Uh, again, nothing exists but particles interacting according to strict chemical, physical laws. Morality is relative from person to person, society to society. It's just an illusion. In fact, Michael Roos, atheist philosopher, put it like this. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, that is a moral law of some kind, ethics is illusory. He goes on to say, I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring to a moral law of some kind that exists above and beyond them. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It has no existence or being beyond this, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Any, any idea that you might have that morality is real, that some, that, that some things really are right and some things are wrong, that right and wrong exist, is an illusion from a materialist perspective. So Another there you have it. That's, that's uh, episode 68, uh, where the real moral relativists, uh, if you want to go back and find that whole argument, and I think that's the one where you you uh, you have like a PG moment. Uh, we go beyond uh, rated G territory into that one, into some analogies <laughs> to illustrate yeah, how morality we, really is true. It does exist. So, Yeah, actually, we spent two episodes on morality because the one about the crocodile that came after that was... That's right. Yeah, morality. it was uh, episode yeah. 69 in there too so okay, yeah but, i'm cataloging okay, all taking, these we've done a million episodes uh ken so i'm just trying to keep them all straight in my mind okay uh, take another one what about human rights i mean this is something else again it's in our declaration of independence it talks about how people possess unalienable rights to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness unalienable meaning that the rights are inherent to people endowed by their creator it says and that it can't be that those rights can't be separated from the person. And the thing is, most everyone believes in these. Uh, there are atheists who devote their entire lives to fighting for human rights. What about human rights? Well, from a materialist perspective, again, sorry, Matt, it's a, it's another illusion. Objectively speaking, objectively speaking, human beings are nothing more than the forward edge of the sludge of evolution. And uh, whatever rights that we have are rights that we simply grant to one another. You know, I'm granting you the right to, to, to live because you live on the other end of the country and I can't get to you. But I, you know, if I was there, maybe I would remove that right from you. You don't have it. It doesn't, it's not something you possess by nature because from within a materialist point of view, you are an accident of nature. You have no rights. And you could see this so again, in some atheist governments where uh, they don't, acknowledge any rights that come from anywhere other than the state. The only rights that come to you, uh, for instance, if you live in a place like China, are rights that exist because the state has decided they exist. There is nothing, there's no higher law that a government like that consents to answer to, unlike, for instance, here in the United States of America, and actually quite a few other countries that assume that they are obeying some other kind of higher law when they set out their structure of right and wrong and what is acceptable and unacceptable in a society but it can if it makes perfect sense that if you're an atheist government an atheist regime um that you wouldn't believe in 
human rights. You would believe in whatever rights were expedient to the continuation of your particular government. I mean, it just it's just how it is. You're not answering yeah, to anybody except for yourself. What you have, I mean, when it came to Mao's China or Stalin's Soviet Union, what what you have is the ideal in a society that you have in front of you that you want to create. And means to getting there, are it's wide open, wide open. We have many, many complaints here about things that happen and, uh, you know, government overreach and, and whatnot. But can you imagine what would happen here in the United States if, uh, if our government actually put to death three or four or five million Americans because they stood in the way of, of the plan, you know? That'd be pretty wild. You know, you pretty know, it's wild. unbelievable. And yeah, that's what Mao and Stalin and them did. You know, millions and millions of their own people just simply erased because they didn't, they didn't matter. Yeah, and so uh, we dig into that human rights question quite a bit uh, in depth, and that's in episode 70 uh, that we get into that. Again, we're buzzing right through these. Uh, these are not issues that we have left unaddressed. We've addressed them at great length, but uh, if this is the first episode you're watching of this, then definitely go back and check out some of these so you don't think that we've just skipped over these questions. Yeah, we're not, no, we're not addressing these in details now. In fact, yeah, I would like to make it clear that as we go back through and we remember these, all I'm the only point I'm making at this point is is the summary point that each of these, from within a consistently materialist worldview, wind up having to be uh, having to be relegated to the realm of illusion. You know, um, objective human worth and value—it's an illusion. Morality turns out to be an illusion. Human rights—an illusion. What about meaning and purpose in life? This is another one that we devoted uh, in episode two. Um, this seems to be a critical need for people. People commit suicide when they come to truly believe that life is ultimately meaningless. Um, but meaning, purpose, again, from a consistent materialist worldview, these are illusions. And atheist Richard Dawkins has said it flat out. He says, we live in a universe in which there is, I'm quoting now, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, I don't think he lives a single day of his life actually believing this, but this is what he says. This is what follows from his philosophy. You know, there's no design. There's no purpose. There's no evil, in fact, and no good, which is kind of a strange thing because his book is just filled with condemnations of various, you know, uh, religi religions and whatnot for the things that he thinks they do. Um, but uh, here he says there's no evil, there's no good. Stephen Jay Gould, atheist paleontologist, this is how he answered the question, why are we here? We're talking about purpose again. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We're here because the earth never froze entirely during the ice age. We're here because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. Here's the line that really hits. We may yearn for a higher answer. That is to, to, to the question, why are we here? We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And again, yeah. I wonder how I wonder how he knows that. Yeah, well, and then this is the one where we got into, this is episode 71. We addressed that at further length. Uh, we even got into your, your old pal Fred Nietzsche's parable of the madman and what do you do, right, if nothing has any meaning. So, uh, yeah, that's episode 71 if you want to get the full review of that one. As we're building yeah. the whole case to the bow to put on the whole yeah, series. Yeah, and what... We moved from, in, in episode to episode, we moved deeper and deeper into the human person, and meaning and purpose is important, but we, we move even deeper. What about consciousness? I mean, what about the deep sense that you have 
and that I have, that we are somebody, you know, that we are somebody. Again, this turns out from within the materialist worldview to be an illusion. According to a consistent materialist view of things, human consciousness is entirely reducible to electrochemical processes taking place in the brain. And because of this, atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett insists, the way he describes it, he insists that consciousness is a trick that the brain plays on us. Um, it's, an, it's a case of, an entire, of entirely physical chemical processes in here making it seem as though there is this self that ha has been known as Ken Hensley for, for many, many years now, making it seem as though there is this self that is somehow separate from these physical processes when he says in reality there's nothing going on, nothing but those physical processes, the firing of neurons, electrochemical processes and whatnot. So again, I'm quoting on each of these, I'm not making a case here, I'm just quoting that atheists themselves will state and even insist that these things are illusions when they are attempting to be really consistent with their bottom line metaphysic, their, their worldview, philosophical materialism. That's why atheist molecular biologist Francis Crick put it like this in his book, The Astonishing Hypothesis. Okay, here's the astonishing hypothesis. Quote, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity, I am somebody, and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Consciousness is an illusion as well from a consistent materialist worldview. Yeah, we got into that in episode 72, so you can check out more on that. But again, even the fact that you think that you are watching on the journey with Matt and Ken, and we think that we are on here recording something for you, <laughs> that's just an illusion. Like, you're not there, we're not there. There's just something that is causing some clump of cells on your end of this thing and some clump of our cells over here to think that we are distinct groups of conscious beings when in fact it's just another process to imagine to imagine yeah it's another illusion and what you just said leads us directly into the next one that is what about free will i mean we all live as though we had freedom to choose you know you had the choice to make this video today or not make it i i had the choice too i mean our entire system of uh, 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 moral system and governmental system societal system legal systems are based on the idea that we are free and therefore we are responsible and accountable for our actions. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches this. It says, God has created man a rational being, conferring on him the dignity of a person who can initiate and control his own actions. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. From a materialist perspective, sorry, uh, one more illusion for you to chalk up in your list, because within a consistent materialist worldview, our universe exists as one gigantic closed system of cause and effect, physical cause and effect, and we're a part of that, and therefore, everything is determined by physical laws. And again, this is not something that I'm foisting upon 
the atheist, this is something atheist philosophers will say. Here's John Searle writing on the topic of free will. He says, we are inclined to say that since nature consists of particles and their relations with each other, and since everything can be accounted for, everything in terms of those particles and their relations, there is simply no room for freedom of will. And uh, atheist philosopher, I mean, and neuroscientist Sam Harris takes this to the end when he says, human thought and behavior are determined by prior states of the universe and its laws, okay? He says, not about this gigantic, again, mechanical closed system of cause and effect. And he says, human thought, even what I'm thinking now and behavior, what I'm doing, you know, it's all determined. This was determined by prior states of the universe and its laws. He says, we are driven by chance and necessity, just as a marionette is set dancing on its strings. So consciousness, it's an illusion. Free will, it's an illusion. And let's just step to the deepest level possible. What about knowledge? Yep. Well, before we do that, I want to send people back to episode sure. 73 to, to unpack that. And uh, again, we get a lot more into, with lots and lots of Pinocchio-related analogies, the implications of all this, that what what would what it means if you don't have any more free will in doing that thingy that you just did with your hands, then a pin has free will as to which way it's going to bounce when you drop it on the floor, right? Uh, that the right. universe, from its very first inception, whenever that was, if there ever was a beginning, we're just in this gigantic cosmic eternal Rube Goldberg device where somebody flipped over one domino and it set off billions and trillions of dominoes over the years to create uh, a creature like me that has blue eyes, right? I mean, it's it's all it's all completely meaningless, completely unguided, and completely even my, determined. Even my, even my thought that I have, that it's, I'm conscious of my own free will, an illusion, because free will itself is an illusion. So there you have it. Yeah, so, you know, again, to, to put this in context, we're talking about reductionist worldviews. Scientific materialism is a reductionist worldview. It reduces everything to material, substances, causes, laws, and it insists that everything is explainable in terms of material, substances, causes, laws, and whatnot. And therefore, it is forced to relegate to the realm of illusion anything that doesn't seem to be reducible. And we've talked about human value, we've talked about morality, we've talked about meaning and purpose in life, we've talked about human rights, unalienable human rights, we've talked about consciousness itself, we've talked about free will, and then there's knowledge, which we spent a couple of episodes on this, and th this is too complicated to even explain again, except to simply say that atheists and and believers in God, we all reason, we all use reason, we all assume that re reason can lead us to the truth. Atheists write books, they use logic to try and prove the non-existence of God. But if nothing exists but material substances, and if material substances are always acting according to the strict laws of chemistry and physics, then everything I'm thinking right now is determined by physical laws, chemistry in my brain, physical laws in my brain, in which case, my thoughts are physically determined things. Darwin referred to our thoughts once as excretions of brain. And so it raises the question, I mean, how do we, why should we believe that our thoughts are even true? And I'll simply quote from one uh, 
atheist scientist who very famously said this, his name was J.B.S. Haldane, he struggled with this exact question. So this is not a phony question that I'm throwing up here. He struggled with it too. This is how he expressed that struggle. J.B.S. Haldane, if materialism is true, it seems to me that we cannot know that it is true. Why? You know, you want, why, why is he saying that? Well, here's what he says. If my opinions are the result of the chemical processes going on in my brain, they are determined by the laws of chemistry, not those of logic. And that's kind of putting it in a nutshell. He's saying, if, if my very thoughts, if even the process of reasoning when I argue and write a book, if it's determined by chemical processes, then it's not determined by laws of thought, rationality, logic. It's determined by something physical. Um, it, it's this same problem that led atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel to publish his book back in 2012 with a crazy title, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Because he was struggling with the same thing. That, that, it, that if he took his atheism, his materialism to its final conclusion, it rubbed him out. It rubbed him out as a conscious being. It rubbed him out as someone with thoughts that were independent of cause and effect, material determinism. It just rubbed him out. And he realized that can't be true. So, so we can get on to the apologetic situation. Let, let me just sum up briefly then, okay? The atheist materialist, he holds to a view of the world that forces him to reduce many of the most basic and fundamental aspects of our experience as human beings, these, these aspects we've been walking through, to reduce them to the status of illusion, including morality, including consciousness, free will, and even knowledge. And so this is kind of an ironic way to put it, but it turns out when I think about it that what the consistent materialist does to the human person well, it turns out to be even worse than what Procrustes did to his guests. Because, I mean, at least he only cut off their feet or maybe a, a bit of ankle or maybe, you know, three or four inches of shin. Um, the atheist materialist is forced to cut off our heads in order to reduce everything to material. Because when he excises freedom, free will, excises human consciousness, and excises even knowledge, He's basically lopped off our heads to make us fit a materialist worldview. And uh, just to zip back on the, those th that very complex sure. question of, of whether knowledge can exist, uh, we did two episodes on that, 74 and 75. But, uh, you know, Procrustes in his, you know, iron bed, uh, you know, is similar to the analogy you used me, about me going to the airport with my suitcase and stuff hanging out of it and, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, me cutting everything or, you know, that's hanging out of the suitcase on and saying, hey, everything fits now, you know, uh, there's that. And it, what's what's odd about this um, is that a scientific materialist would look at you and me uh, who believe in a creator God. Um, never mind the fact that all the mm -hmm. other stuff that, you know, goes into you and I being Catholic Christians. Um, but they would say to us you're oversimplifying your view of the world by believing in a creator God. When in fact, uh, what we've done is we've, we've decided that faith and reason both have to be involved in this question, whereas they've decided that only reason 
has to be involved in this question, right? So in a sense, they've they've made it simpler than it actually is. It's actually a lot more complicated than what the, I mean, as you were just saying, it's a reductionist worldview necessarily yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's oversimplifies uh, things. Well, yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting that 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 they would say that we are simplifying because you know just like the Eastern pantheist has simplified everything to one thing, spirit, and everything else. I mean, everything that doesn't fit that category is is illusion. The materialist has the simplest view of all. Everything is particles, and anything that doesn't fit particles is an illusion of one kind or another. Um, yeah, we we hold a more complex view because we're saying no. Uh, there is God and there's the, the the created universe, you know, there's the immaterial and the material and they're both involved. So yeah, I and there even are, say that I wouldn't even say that they've reduced it to reason because they, I don't think they can even account for reason, but go ahead. Well, they can't, they can't really not in a purely materialist worldview as we were just talking about, um, you know, in our discussion of, of knowledge mm-hmm. itself, even whether or not it exists. And I would say, um, that there is, it is important to make a distinction here because there are forms of Christianity that do take a, you know, sort of fideist approach to creation that would deny uh, what science has actually demonstrated, right? right, uh, right in certain right. areas that, that they would say, well, none of this matters. Um, uh, but there are a great many Christian traditions, of course, we're the Catholic Church, you and I, are. that's what we're a part of, mm-hmm. um, where the whole scientific method was developed by a lot of priest scientists so through the centuries right yeah. people who were uh you know ordained priests and in some cases even bishops who are also astronomers and paleontologists and stratigraphers and geologists and all kinds of other things right because they thought i must know this god and i must know what he has made right i right. must know right. with the eyes of faith but i also must know with my microscope uh so yeah um in, in a sense you know, we're the, actually the really complicated view of looking at things uh, compared to a scientific materialist who has basically said, we're only going to look at the stuff in this little box, the stuff that fits mm-hmm. into the scientific materialist box. Yeah, I mean, the Big Bang is a theory that was originated from a Catholic priest, right? Yeah, Belgian, uh, yeah. Father Georges Lemaitre. So. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, you made this point several times throughout this course, and it's a good point to make, is, is that it, it was within a... Christian worldview that science actually arises because there's the assumption that, you know, we've been created by a rational being, God. In fact, we are created in God's image, and that's why we have rational faculties. And we can assume that the world is created in an orderly way. It's something that can be studied and understood. And so science arose in that worldview. Okay, but, but let's move on to the application of this to, to apologetics. Um, um, I've referred to this method of apologetics that we've been using in this series as Wizard of Oz apologetics. And the reason is because rather than following a method of presenting positive proofs for God's existence, I think of Aquinas' five ways here, the focus in this series has been on um, arguing for God's existence indirectly, if you will, by pulling back the curtain on naturalism and trying to expose its bankruptcy. Okay, so by critiquing naturalism, showing the problems with naturalism, we're making an indirect argument for God's existence. And I like to use this this um, approach, Matt, for two reasons mainly. And the first reason that I use this approach and prefer it really to others is that it makes clear the fact that the atheist as well as the theist has a worldview that he needs to defend. 
okay, that it's not just us doing the defending. And I thought here of a quotation from C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, where Lewis said this. He said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, that is the modern man, is the judge. God is in the dock. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench, that is the judge's bench, and God is in the dock. Uh, The complaint that Lewis is making here is a complaint that I have had with the way in which so many discussions take place about God's existence between believers and unbelievers. And what I'm talking about specifically is the assumption that most often is made by the atheist, and I think is too often accepted by the believer as perfectly reasonable, that is the assumption that it's the, it's the, the unbeliever's prerogative to ask all the hard questions, and it's the, the believer's unhappy task to scramble about like a rat in a, you know, in a box um, on the defensive, okay? You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the tendency, which is so common now for the atheist in debate to say, hey, I have nothing to defend. Um, I merely lack a belief in God. You're the one who's making the positive assertion of God's existence, and therefore the burden of proof lies on you. I can lean back against the brick wall, you know, smoke, smoke a cigarette, and I just, you know, okay, give me your argument. Give me your argument. Nah, not good enough. Give me another argument, Matt. Hmm, no, that's not good enough. Try again. You, you know, that, that, that kind of stance that is assumed. And while it's true that, that in debate, um, one, the one who is making a positive assertion does bear burden of proof. But what is not true, and this is what I'm trying to bring out by the use of this methodology, what is not true is that the atheist is making no positive assertion. The atheist is making a positive assertion about the nature of reality when he says, Nothing exists but particles and their relations, and everything is reducible to particles and relations. And therefore, the atheist is asserting a form of naturalism, scientific naturalism most often in the debate these days in the Western world. And so by challenging, this is what I think, by challenging the atheist to account for these basic fundamental aspects of human experience, okay, account for human consciousness, on the basis of your worldview. Account for free will. Account for knowledge. Account for even the use of reason when you've already said that everything is totally determined by physical laws and chemical laws, electrochemical processes taking place in the brain. By challenging the atheist on these grounds, um, we're, as it were, turning the tables a bit and at least making it clear that the apologetic situation is not fairly described as one in which the Christian bears the burden of proof. You know, I need to prove God's existence. And the atheist has nothing to, uh, to demonstrate. Uh, the atheist just enjoys this total luxury of presiding as judge and jury over the entire affair, you know, from a supposed seat of scientific neutrality. I, that's really kind of it. I'm, I'm, sending, I'm trying to send an arrow into this idea of neutrality. That no, you're not neutral. You have a positive view of the world. You're telling me that nothing exists but material substances. So you have things to explain as well. You have things to defend as well. It's not just one side having to make the argument, okay? Yeah, it reminds me of the G.K. Chesterton uh, quote um, on this matter when he says, it's assumed that the skeptic has no bias. 
when in fact he has a very obvious bias in favor of skepticism, <laughs> right? Right, so, right, right, um, right. It is a positive assertion. Uh, to say there yeah. is nothing is a is a positive kind of statement, even if it's a positive statement about a negative kind of thing. Yeah, you know, so that it's funny because we've been using the word illusion a lot, but it, it, it's neutrality that ends up being the illusion, you know. Um, you know, if you have a position, you're not neutral. You know, if you were neutral, you have you would have no position. Having a position is to be the opposite of neutral. Okay, so that's one reason why I I tend to use this method when I'm talking with people who doubt or deny the existence of God, because I think it brings us both into the debate. I have a position, I have a worldview, and I'm going to argue for it. You have a worldview. And therefore, you have to argue for yours, too. You can't just assume that your worldview is the neutral starting place somehow, you know, and I'm the only one who's veering from that obvious neutral starting place, and I'm the one that has to argue. Okay, but there, there's another reason that is really more personal, Matt. I like using this apologetic approach because I think that it touches the atheist in a far more personal way than presenting him with abstract arguments about motion or about contingency. Now, let me say quickly, I think that those arguments are solid arguments. They are good arguments. But I think it touches someone in a much more personal way to, uh, to, to say to them, what is your grounds for morality? You know, or how do you account for consciousness? Explain to me how you're free and you're not just a machine, just a part of this gigantic cause and effect machine. Then, then making an argument about motion, which is often, there are many people that just don't even have the capability to abstract themselves enough to follow Aquinas' argument on motion um, or contingency, necessary being, contingent being, and, and whatnot. And so it's like this, Matt. When I sit down for a beer or a cup of coffee with someone who I would identify as an atheist, Here's how it all works in my mind. I'm sitting down with someone who is the image and likeness of God, I believe. Someone who has been created to mirror the very being and nature of God. I'm sitting down with someone who I believe, therefore, knows a lot. He knows that human beings possess special value, even if his worldview says the opposite. He knows that morality is something real, and he lives that way. He, and he insists on that from other people. He knows that he is somebody. He's not just a bag of protoplasm, you know, electrochemical processes just, you know, zinging away inside of his skull. He know, In other words, I believe I'm sitting with someone made in the image of God who knows all these things to be true. He knows this, and in most cases, he lives according to it, which gets back to a point you've made many times that we're not saying here that unbelievers don't live moral lives or, that, or anything like that. In fact, in most cases... They do. The problem that I'm wanting to focus on is that he cannot account for these things that he believes and on the basis of which he lives. He can't account for them on the basis of what he says is true about the universe in which we live. And because of that, I know that I'm dealing with someone who lives in tension, lives in tension between what he knows to be true as the image and likeness of God and what he says is true about the world in which we live. And so my method is, is the thought that by putting my finger on aspects of this tension, I can hopefully lead this person to think about the problems he has making sense of life. And, you know, and I've given several illustrations of this in, from my past, too, that 
that I that I don't want to repeat. But I think you can see what I'm talking about. That that you know, if you're an atheist and yet you're a very moral person, and I put my finger on that thing and I say, uh, you know, explain to me where 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 you get morality, you know, or where you get a morality that you could try to enforce on anyone else on, on Earth. How do you get it from particles? Then. I'm, I'm touching you at a part, at a place that is very personal and very meaningful. And the same with yeah, consciousness. This is so... Same with, same, with, same with all these things. Same with knowledge, same with all of it. And this is where I think it's especially incumbent upon uh, if, if you're a theist of any kind, mm-hmm. but especially if you're a Christian, and especially if you have a, a, an anthropology informed by theology of the body, as Catholics do, um, that you don't become a reductionist in this argument. That you don't reduce the person sitting across the table from you, or reduce the person uh, logged yeah. on across the internet from you to a series of particles, to a series of arguments, to a collection of ideas mm-hmm. with which you disagree. I mean, this this drives it all back home that the Christian needs to make sure they're 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 not uh, you know theologically mm-hmm. Christians, but for the purpose of arguments, atheists reducing someone to. Uh, basically trying to rob them of their free will by presenting them with a series of arguments that, you know, they should not be able to reject. Uh, you know, you can't, I mean, it's a very easy thing to do to become reductionist, even as you're presenting this mm-hmm. argument, if you're not careful, which is why I value so much uh, the way that you've framed this whole entire series uh, as looking at that person and remembering this is someone who's made in the image of God, and that's what I'm going to appeal to. Yeah, that's what you're reaching into. No, I'm, I mean I appreciate what you're saying, and but I think that that, I think that that is the case. Um, it's it's rooted in this view. In fact, that what I feel like when I'm talking to someone is I feel like I'm appealing to someone not who is unlike me, but someone who is like me. I'm appealing to someone who's the same as I am. We're both made by God. We're both in the image of God and likeness of God. We both know that consciousness is real. We both know you know these things. We both know these things. Uh, even the fact the that you're is, both using the word no, right? I mean, yeah. even the fact that you're both using the word no proves that you're on the same page about at least a little bit of this. Well, the, yeah, and the problem lies in the fact that he, that this person's espoused worldview, what his stated worldview, cannot provide a foundation for these things that he is and that he knows and that, and that he believes. In fact, which brings me to it like an analogy, an analogy that I like to use that I that I was taught by one of my teachers an analogy to describe the apologetic situation is the analogy of the cattle rancher and the cattle rustler, okay? So we're going back in time in the Wild West, all right? Now, and here's the thing. Viewed from the outside, notice that the, that, that the legitimate cattle rancher and the illegitimate cattle rustler, from viewed from the outside, they looked pretty much the same. I mean, you know, both had this beautiful, you know, expensive 10-gallon hat that they wore around, both of them had shiny spurs. Both of them had these fine boots and these beautiful shining belt buckles and whatnot. And mainly, most importantly, both of them had corrals filled with, with a wonderful, lovely head of cattle, okay? So viewed from the outside, you look at the legitimate rancher and you look at the cattle rustler and you would say, well, they look the same. Um, so what was the difference? Well, the difference between them was that the legitimate rancher could account for his cattle. That is, he could explain how he got them, where they came from. Um, the rustler couldn't. 
Um, in fact, the rustler would have no cattle in his corrals at all if he had not, as they used to say in the wet Wild West, uh, if he had not swung a wide rope and had not, as it were, borrowed them from some legitimate ranchers, okay? So in a similar way, I look at my atheist friend and I see that he possesses all of the things that I possess as one who believes in God, in our creation, in the image and likeness of God. I mean, he's committed, most often, he's committed to the equal worth and dignity of every person. He has a moral life. He believes in right and wrong. He believes in justice. He believes that people possess the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He would completely reject the idea that rights are something that, that states simply give people, and, and it's totally legitimate for there to be a, a dictatorial state that takes away people's rights and kills them. You know, uh, he, would never, he would never stand with that. He believes in freedom. He believes usually that life has meaning and purpose. He lives as though it did. He believes that knowledge is possible. And maybe most deeply, he believes that he is somebody he believes that he is more than just a fiction being, you know, projected from a physical brain being gen generated like, like a like a movie or something like that. Okay, so he's got all the same things that I have, and so I look at my atheist friend Matt, and I see that he's got the very same cattle, if you will, in his corral that I've got in mine, and he lives each day as though these cattle naturally belonged to him. And the problem for him is simply that he cannot account for these cattle. On, on the basis of what he says is true about the universe in which we live, this universe, as you know, Richard Dawkins said, in which there is no purpose, no design, no evil, no good, blind, pitiless indifference, on the basis of what he says is true of the universe in which we live, he can't account for these things that he has, all these good things, these cattle. If his materialist worldview was really true, his corrals would be quite empty. And so um, how did he come to possess these cattle? It's, it's just like the rancher. It turns out that like the rustler, I mean, like the cattle rustler, it turns out that he has borrowed them, as it were, from a worldview that can make sense of them and that can account for them. Uh, or I like to say it this way, the atheist is living on borrowed capital. The atheist is living his life on borrowed capital. And this is not something that I condemn him for, not in the least. In fact, I think that this is not done consciously, is not done with evil intent, certainly. Um, in fact, it's something that is natural. This gets back to the, the image of God again. This is so natural for him. It's so inescapable for him to believe in, in the value of human life, to believe in morality, to believe that consciousness is real. It, it, it's so natural for him and inescapable because he, again, is the image and likeness of God. These things have been written into his bones by, by his creator. He can't avoid possessing all these lovely cattle, the same cattle that you and I have. He, he can't avoid it. The problem is, in terms of his worldview, he can't explain how he came to possess them or why they should be treated as real and not simply illusions. And so here's how it boils down, that when I ask my atheist friend, and I want to do it with gentleness and respect, as the Word of God says, as our church teaches, when I ask my atheist friend um, to account for his cattle, I'm, I'm basically just saying to him, show me your receipts. I mean, I can show you the receipts where I got the cattle. It, it all makes sense within 
this uh, Christian worldview. Show me your receipts. How, how do you account for these beautiful cattle? And when I point out that his stated worldview doesn't provide a basis for the cattle, um, again, with gentleness and with respect, I'm only doing this, I'm only pointing this out, putting my finger on this tension in hopes that I can go on to, ex to explain that there is another worldview in terms of which all of these uh, wonderful things that he has and believes in are intelligible, in which they make sense. So, you know, basically I'm reminding him, I, I'm hoping I'm reminding him of things that he already knows. And he may be living better than I do. What do you think yeah. about that, Matt? I mean, I think a lot of things are rolling through my mind. Um, and with all of them, and I know we have a sort of a closing thought to add in here, uh, but I've been in conversations, and I'm sure you have too, where you've pointed out all these kinds of things. Uh, and maybe you've pointed out to someone who has... Um, as has been the case of a couple of conversations that I've had over the years mm -hmm. where someone has uh, left belief in God, belief in the Christian God even, uh, for an atheist worldview, and then they've thought critically through the steps that you just thought through and realized that atheism can't account for any of this stuff either, and they agree with me, and they agree with the atheists and their natural conclusions about these things, but at the end of the day they say, I just don't believe. Right. I just don't believe. Mm -hmm. I can't explain why. I just mm -hmm. don't believe. And that's where I think it's also important um, to, to come back to this this point, too, uh, which, you know, we've, we've touched on in other series as well. And that is that faith is a gift. Um, you can't just summon up faith. Right. You can't just like, you know, work it up within yourself. Um, if the Christian worldview is true, um, it has to be grace. Uh, right. So um, if that's you and you're stuck in that midway place between knowing that this atheist thing is not the ticket, but not believing in uh, the Christian worldview or any of it, and you, you just feel stuck, I would just say that we are praying for you <laughs> for that grace. And I would encourage you to pray for yourself for that grace, even if you think you're praying into the void, uh, just to see what happens. Because again, if you are a person who's had this all set up, it's and then it all gets knocked down, then we'll, that's a scary place too. To conclude this, I I want to read one more time um, the passage from atheist philosopher of mind John Searle that, that we began the entire series with. Um, this is what he says: There is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy, and I I, got, I always have to emphasize that that's a strong statement. There is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy. How do we fit in? How can we square this self-conception of ourselves as mindful, meaning-creating, free, rational agents with a universe that consists entirely of meaningless, mindless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles? And I think that we, we could sum up the entire series as the answer to this question is that the conception we have of ourselves cannot be squared. It, it can't be squared with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles. We don't fit into that universe. Human experience, human life, we are far too rich far too complicated to fit into that universe. We just don't. 
Um, where we do fit, beautifully in fact, is in a universe in which the ultimate reality is not particles, but the infinite personal God who has made us in his image and likeness and in whom we, we live and move and have our being. That is the worldview in which we fit. Yeah, so, Ken, this is a lot. And uh, even the attempt to summarize it has been a lot. <laughs> so uh, I would very much encourage people to go back uh, if you want to revisit any of these points and rather than you know just try and take it as a whole, just isolate out something like the question of free will or something like the question of consciousness. Uh, we have addressed those topics individually, as we mentioned. Some of you have been following along this whole time and already know that. Um, but uh, check that out, chnetwork.org slash on the journey for those episodes. And again, too, uh, if you are a person with these questions and you're asking them not as an academic exercise, but because you really are trying to find out where you fit in, <laughs> right, and all of this, please do con uh, connect with us. Uh, chnetwork.org is the main site where we have most of our resources, uh, including articles that Ken has written to this effect as well. Uh, but also head on over to our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Um, where Ken and I are actively in conversation with a whole bunch of other wonderful people who would be more than happy to just sort of walk with you through some of this stuff. Uh, and uh, trust me, there is no question too stupid. I've asked dumber questions that any of you can come up with. So uh, hopefully that takes down the intimidation factor as well. And then again, uh, if you want to support the work that we do uh, and make it possible for Ken and I to continue doing this stuff, including a new series that we're going to start next time around, then please do go over to chnetwork.org slash donate ken thank you again it's been a fun series looking forward to starting the next one with you yeah so am i it's been good it's been great you're All real right. be real i'm a real boy ken i'm a real boy <laughs> and you boy. look a little I'm bit boy. you look a little bit like geppetto let's be honest so. okay oh wow i never thought of that i can see it all right i look a little bit like okay, jiminy we'll cricket then. actually all right until next time have a see good day then.